This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with Rebecca Ford. Hello. And only Rebecca Ford for right now, but uh, we have we have a big group episode coming for you that we've recorded all in little chunks. Uh, a little bit later, you'll hear from four of our colleagues to talk about Dune. That's Richard Lawson, David Canfield, Anthony Bresnikan, and Chris Murphy, all familiar voices from this podcast. Uh, and you'll also hear Anthony's interview with Rebecca Ferguson, who is one of the stars of Dune. And then we'll have an interview that I did with Diane Warren, the 12-time Oscar-nominated songwriter who was the guest of honor at the opening night of Film Fest 919 here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which I was very excited to talk to her on stage at that event. We caught up on Zoom beforehand to talk about kind of the process of getting back on the road and going to these film festivals. So we'll hear from that. Um, But first, Rebecca, you and I are here to talk about the awards news of the moment, aside from all these festivals and all these movies opening. Um, and basically, and you have been kind of your finger on the pulse. You've written two pieces that I think are uh, about the biggest stories of the moment. So well done, Rebecca. You are, you're reading the room for all of us. I owe it to my editor, Katie Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I just queued you up to, to flatter me. It worked brilliantly. Um, so we'll go in chronological order. Last week you published a piece um, about something that we have been talking about amongst ourselves and I think a lot of people are talking about and really had to be said out loud, which is that this year's uh, Oscar race, particularly in the acting categories, is looking a lot less diverse than it did last year. Last year really set this high watermark for diversity among the acting nominations especially. And then this year, just from the actors who were in the competition, from the people who are getting the most Oscar buzz so far, it's looking a lot less so. Um, And you talk to some of the people who really get into the reasons that this does happen. And it's not just the Academy members lacking imagination, which I think some people want to say. So what did you kind of learn through your reporting about why this happens, that we kind of take one step forward and two steps back? Yeah, I thought, you know, what we should really focus on is the why of it all, because no one is expecting after one great year that things are just going to keep getting better and better. Of course, there's going to be you know some up and down on this journey to a, a Hollywood that better represents um, the world. But it, it was interesting because several of the people I talked to pointed out that because of the pandemic, last year was so unique. You know, a lot of the mm-hmm. big studio movies that get a lot of the, you know, Oscar promotional support got pulled, you know, to wait a year for a theatrical release. And, you know, at the time we thought everything would be back to quote unquote normal. So that gave more opportunity for smaller films that may not have gotten that support on a regular year. And, you know, a lot of those 
smaller films uh, have more diverse storytellers behind them and and tell stories that are, you know, usually more representative than those sort of big studio movies that are going to be the slowest to, to change. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you look at Nomadland and obviously it had this beautiful uh, awards journey and eventually won Best Picture. And, you know, it has a Chinese female uh, director, Chloe Zhao, behind it. And and that film perhaps got more opportunity because some of the big expensive studio movies had been uh, pushed for a year. So a lot of praise sort of went to the way last year was and then a lot of criticism for kind of going back to the way things were, at least mostly this year. You know, the big movies are back. And there's also a lot of movies this year because so many were held. Yeah. Yeah. You I mean, you look at something like Sound of Metal, which is coming from Amazon, um, mm-hmm. which had been, you know, had premiered at Toronto like more than a year beforehand and felt like this unlikely contender. And it kind of rose to the top on the power of people really giving it a push and paying attention to it. And you think the same with Judas and the Black Messiah, which was released mm-hmm. by a major studio uh, like Warner Brothers, which didn't have Dune, which they have now pushed to this year. So you see how the pipeline really affects so much of that. Yeah, I think that was definitely the most interesting thing. I mean, I, you know, I do want to point out that there are quite a few films that do have, um, you know, stars that are people of color this year. It's just they're all kind of at this point, they're not total locks for nomination. So we have a few months to kind of see what happens, you know, and, and like Harder They Fall, I thought was really, really great. Um, and you know, we're still kind of waiting to see how it does in the awards conversation. But I'm still like hopeful that some of these performances will break out that, you know, aren't for sure at the moment. Yeah, the harder they fall, even between the time that we started talking about this piece and you published it, I think it had a big London Film Festival premiere and played really well. So it kind of it felt like it emerged as more of a contender than maybe we expected in that amount of time. So that that is the thing. You know, we look at what is a lock for a nomination at this stage in mid-October and these things can change so much. And I think partly, you know, not to give ourselves too much credit, but by having the conversation, by saying, hey, look, all these people you've earmarked as the frontrunners, like, look at the common thread here, maybe start expanding your view a little bit. Yeah, I think it's good we're talking about it now because I feel like there have been, you know, back in 2015, 2016, when all the performers that were nominated were white, it was sort of like we got to the uh, nominations and everyone was like, what? Oh, my gosh. And and now I feel like we're we're at this point where there's more awareness and we're talking about it early. And, and there is a chance to say, are we paying attention to the stories we want to pay attention to? So, you know, I'm glad that there's there's conversations now so we're not all shocked when uh the awards roll around in a few months you know? yeah so. i mean is if if we're you know speaking to oscar voters right now are there people who you'd say hey they're not necessarily on your rubber stamped list of front runners but pay attention to them anyway is there anyone you'd especially want to put in front of people um i you know i really loved zola and i feel like that movie came out so early and it you know the the stars are maybe not known names, but I feel like if if people could you know give that film a chance, that would be great. And 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 the harder they fall, I just recently saw and thought it was it has so many great performances in it. You know, Jonathan Majors, Regina King, and and I feel like as you mentioned, they had a big premiere in the UK, and then they had a very star-studded LA event as well. So I think maybe there's a chance that they're going to be pushing that film and it deserves it. You know, those are really great performances. So um, I think those are my, my top two that I hope. What about you? Do you have any that you would want to call out? 
Well, I'm just glad to see that the Jonathan Majors love fest is continuing on this show, even with Joanna gone, because Joanna was such a Jonathan Majors supporter for so long, and we're just keeping a, a long-standing tradition alive. Um, and I haven't seen um, The Harder They Fall yet, so I'm sure that I will be right on board. Um, I was going to say Zola, too, and Coleman Domingo, who is in that really uh, powerful, somewhat terrifying supporting role. He's really amazing in that movie, and... It feel again like it feels like something that would be easy to overlook without a campaign. And then another summer movie uh, from A twenty four is The Green Knight, which I just mm. loved. Which is like, in so many ways, not an Oscar movie. Like I get why it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I I loved Dev Patel so much. He's so good in that movie in a role that could just really be kind of like generic you know, sword-carrying hero thing. I think he does a lot with it. And um, I would just love to see just attention to him, you know, even if it's a long shot for a nomination, just like keep keep people like that in the conversation. I think that's kind of on us at this point to keep doing. And you've done it. Green Knight. <laughs> I've said the word Dev Patel. I'm manifesting it in, in reality. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's go on to the other piece that you've written uh, about you know, I guess more imminent breaking news in the award space, which is that the Hollywood Foreign Press has announced their intention to hand out Golden Globes. They picked a date, uh, January 9th, 2022, which just so happens to be the same date the Critics' Choice Awards chose for themselves. Um, it is the traditional Globe spot. You know, when NBC announced last summer that they wouldn't air the Globes, the Critics' Choice Awards pretty much just swooped in. So you, you get why the Globes would want to kind of go back and reclaim it. Um, but in the piece that you wrote this week, Rebecca, you talked to, you know, awards reps who were basically like, what? are we supposed to do right now? Like, it feels like a very puzzling comeback, right? Yeah, it was interesting because most of them, when I reached out and was like, can we talk about what's going on? And they were like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, uh, let's go a little deeper than that. But I think that's really interesting (laughs) is that the Globe sort of announced this vague plan to announce winners. But uh, most of the people like deeply involved with with this process don't really understand how this is going to work. So I'm curious, you know, it does sound like they had some meetings with publicists before announcing this, but it does feel like, and one of the people I talked to pointed this out, it would have been a little smarter to maybe get all the studios on board before yeah. announcing something like this so that you knew people were going to submit and and maybe show up if they do have an event. Um, but they've kept it super vague. And I think that's a really surprising strategy. Yeah. I mean, the thing that it, I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around as people who eat up all these award shows is that you get the actors and the talent involved thinking like, do I need to do another one of these? Like I have to dress up and go, wow. And the idea of kind of striking the globes from the calendar and then suddenly putting it back on there. Like I just, I see this resistance coming of like, why do we need to kind of bend over backwards for this group that says that they've changed, but it, it feels so early in their process of, um, you know, kind of making up the lost ground from all the stories that came out about them over the summer. Like, is it just too early to try to stage something like this? Yeah, I mean, it does feel like who of the talent in the studios is going to be the first to endorse them again by, you know, either hosting a screening or an event or showing up at their event if whatever form it takes. So, um, you know, cause no one in Hollywood, no one wants to be first. Like it's a very <laughs> risk averse industry. So to be the first to sort of say, I support this group again, they've done enough to, to fix their issues. I don't know who that's going to be. And I think that that game of chicken may really stop this plan from working for the HFPA. You know, a lot of the reps did say they weren't sure what kind of 
event they're planning? Is it just sort of a press conference where they announce their winners or is it mm-hmm. like a dinner where people need to show up and they'll have talent presenters and things like that? I think maybe they're still figuring out based on the response to this announcement. But, you know, Katie, as you mentioned, I think it's especially ballsy or stupid to to plant your flag on the date that another show is already happening a show where yeah. a lot of talent do show up yeah yeah the critics choice awards I, I guess they've usually been like the week after the globes kind of in that same period of time and you see a lot of the same people at both shows so and imagining them choosing between them you know the critics choice a group is not a perfect organization but as in terms of uh, PR disasters like the club certainly is overcoming more at the moment so that that seems to me like it would be an easy choice and I'm curious if it feels that way around the industry too I think the key is the broadcast you know like yes. for everyone I talk to they're like the globes are not broadcast this year you know NBC dropped that so why would we make talent get all dressed up and present at a or take get an award at a show that you know, no one's going to see. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, and yes, the critics choice is on the CW, but it's still a broadcast show and it's still heavily covered by press. So it just feels like it seemed if most people said, if they had to choose their, their, they'd go critics choice, you know, regardless that most of these groups kind of have uh, issues, but you know, having a broadcast was, is obviously a key for most of these publicists who are making that decision. Yeah, because you see that date, January 9th. I think that is a week before Oscar nominations voting opens. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah. it's all very strategically aligned. And you think about these nightmarish travel schedule that, that these people have where they have to go back and forth. Because right now, I, I've been kind of fascinated by this week. So January 9th is the Critics' Choice Awards and also the Golden Globes, um, mm-hmm. both of which would be in L.A. Tuesday is the National Board of Review Awards, um, which is in New York, and they announce their winners ahead of time. Uh, Monday, the 10th, is the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. Same thing. They announce their winners ahead of time. Uh, then the SAG nominations are announced that Wednesday, um, which no one has to show up for, but it's a big deal. And then that Saturday is the Governor's Awards, uh, hosted by the Academy, where you usually get everybody there mm-hmm. kind of trying to make themselves visible. Um, and then the nominations uh, voting opens at the end of the month on January 27th. So it's all That's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all know that, especially around that time, it's all about momentum. You know, if you see a certain film in every single headline, then it just feels like, voters will notice that and, and yeah. give it more support. Or if everyone so. they see at an event is like, oh, I just watched Minari yeah. on my screener and that's the movie I'm talking about. And that's how that's how those things build. Yeah. So sounds tiring for those <laughs> for that talent. But uh, I am that's where they all get good vacations in, yeah, uh, at right the end of March. It. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the next few weeks with the HFPA says or reveals about their plans uh, because right now it's super vague and submissions for whatever this is are due in November. So they don't actually have a lot of time to kind of clear up what's going on. Okay, as we continue to go through the recent headlines, uh, we should close the loop on what we discussed last week about the potential uh, strike from IATSE, which is one of the biggest unions in Hollywood, representing a lot of uh, below-the-line, really essential workers on a set. Uh, They reached a deal uh, with the major studios on Saturday, so there is not a strike. We kind of, at one point, we thought by the time we're talking now that there would be a strike, Um, but they haven't ratified it yet, and that vote might take a few weeks to happen. So it's not concluded yet, Uh, but Rebecca, any thoughts on how this, um, you know, potential huge shut down resolved itself it's interesting because i feel like when it was announced um there was sort of an immediate celebration you know on twitter you saw a lot of talent and everything being like congrats and then 
I feel like as time went on, people sort of looked at what these workers would be getting, and uh, there it seems a little murky now. Like it does sound like a lot of people aren't exactly happy with uh, you know the compromises that were made, and and so it was one of the. It's very Hollywood, right? It's like super dramatic when it's like we did it, and then everyone's like, wait a second. So it, it just feel like um, you know there's still some. Uh, disappointment in in the deal that was reached. Yeah, and it still seems like we're seeing the the level of solidarity we were seeing before, where people who are not represented by this union are really standing behind it. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that's what we see continued as they as they hammer it out. Um, but it does seem like the worst case scenario where there was just this like huge sudden shutdown won't happen, which I think we can we can all agree is a good thing, right? Yes, yes, I think that's a good thing. It was it did. I mean, I know these things always wait to the last minute to get resolved, but it did feel. I wonder why that is. I guess it's like your your leverage increases as the other people get start to sweat more about. Yeah, um, for sure. But it all happening. I mean, both sides are sweating, right? Like all those people who wouldn't have work is also terrifying. So yeah, like uh, you save up enough money to cover like months of not working. That's like after a pandemic shut the whole industry down. That's that's tough position. Yeah. For sure. Which I guess indicates how strongly they felt about what they were negotiating for. Yep. Uh, well, on to much more complex news. Um, I don't I don't think we have it in us to rehash the entire uh, Netflix, Dave Chappelle, and Berlio that they were trapped in. And honestly, by the time you hear this, um, there will probably have been a walkout of employees, which was uh, supposed to happen on October 20th. So uh, we will not necessarily be up to date, but I think it is a really, really interesting unfolding story. We'll probably talk about it more next week. Um, and the thing that I'm interested in as you know, befits the theme of this show is what happens when Netflix is kind of in what I would guess is the worst press cycle that it's had in its life as a company um, and is also launching all of these really excellent films out into the award season at the same time. Um, I don't see them affecting each other right now. I think the fact that The Harder They Fall is kind of in the middle of getting out there uh, right now is you know maybe especially hard in that film. But Rebecca, what do you think about the potential long long-form ramifications of the situation in which uh, Ted Sarandos is basically facing open rebellion from a large segment of his employees over Dave Chappelle's comedy special. Do you think that this is going to linger um, as Netflix kind of pushes into another award season? Yeah, it's a good question. And I I don't know. I think you're right. Like, it's we haven't seen Netflix and Sarandos face this kind of heat before, uh, you know, and and this sort of scandal really and so I think it depends how the press cycle treats it you know if Mm -hmm. if talent from Netflix films or Ted are are doing um, you know carpets at awards events and asked about it for the next couple months it kind of keeps the story alive and I think then there's a chance that people remember that this has happened I mean the the sort of memory of of the news cycle is so short, you know, we, yes. no one may be talking about this, unfortunately, in a couple of months. And I, and you know, whether that's right or wrong, I think, um, I don't know if it's this kind of scandal is going to, you know, remain until voting happens, but I do think it, it's definitely interesting because like you said, we haven't seen, um, Netflix sort of face this kind of criticism. 
Yeah, and what this has revealed to me, honestly, that I didn't quite realize is that Netflix is famously withholding about its stats. You know, they'll tell you yeah. something is the most watched whatever, and you just have to take them at their word. But they share those stats really widely within the company, which I didn't realize. Um, so the fact that all of these people have known all this highly protected information and have kept it to themselves this long, and then the leak that happened last week kind of amid this controversy about, you know, how much they paid for Chappelle and how much they, the, they determined it was worth. Um, oh, my God, what was the word that they used to, like, oh, impact value of mm. of a special, which yeah, they put an actual f- price tag on it, which I, I didn't know. I, the fact that that's happening, I think, probably speaks to the extent to which this has really riled people up. Um, and it makes me wonder um, if more things like this will happen as kind of the internal company culture shifts and, and knows that they can push back in this way. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall in the well, I guess no one's in the office, in the <laughs> digital office that they're in, because it does feel like it's it's sort of broken something open, you know, because the yeah. company is so secretive and, you know, their employees are very good about um, keeping everything under wraps. So it it's definitely feels like something is shifting. Yeah. Well, we will certainly keep talking about it, because, as I said, um, by the time you hear this, probably something else major would have happened. Um, and we will we will try to keep up to date. One last thing before we hear the conversation about Dune and then move into the interview portion of the show. Um, two of you, uh, wonderful listeners uh, via subtext, join subtext.com slash littlegoldman, texted to uh, flag for us the Inside the Academy Museum special that aired on ABC and is now on Hulu. Uh, it's got our guest, Diane Warren, is one of the people on it, along with Tom Hanks and Laura Dern and all kinds of people. Um, and I'm just, I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I'm just so delighted that it's there. Rebecca, you went inside the Academy Museum, so you lived it, basically. Um, but I am so glad I get to to share a little bit of it um is there anything like anything that that dazzled you physically in person that I that I or anyone else should look for in this special I have not watched the special either as because as you said I've lived it but it (laughs) um the museum is fantastic and I I don't know I'm sure the special makes it look as big and beautiful and and well curated as it is um you know people really loved that you could like do a little mini video with winning an Oscar, which obviously was uh, a fun little <laughs> bit that people can go and do for social media. But I, it just the the exhibits are so beautiful. I, you know, I am a sucker for costumes and there's a whole room of just like Black Panther costumes and Star Wars items. And it's just everything is is so well thought out and it's just so user friendly that you know whenever anyone's in LA I definitely recommend you go and check it out uh, because it's it's a real treat for movie lovers. I'm Bobby Finger and I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say who the heck is that? Our podcast Who Weekly is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, now let's throw it to our far-flung outer space correspondents. Um, let's hear Richard Lawson, Anthony Bresican, David Canfield, and Chris Murphy all tell us about Dune. So before I jump into this conversation about the film Dune with uh, VF's own Anthony Bresican, Chris Murphy, and David Canfield, I thought I should just give uh, a little rundown of generally what Dune is about. It concerns the dynastic House of Atreides, who run one planet and then are sent to the planet Arrakis to kind of rule over that after the longtime rulers. The Harkonnens have been deposed by the Emperor. Timothy Chalamet plays Paul Atreides, who is the you know, princeling of this family. Uh, and the importance of the planet Arrakis is that they have spice, which is something used for mystical purposes, but also for starship navigation. So um, they're taking over the rule of the planet sets up a lot of intrigue and violence and uh, prophecy and all that sort of thing. Uh, so with that, hopefully somewhat legibly explained, let's hear my conversation with Anthony, Chris and David. Well, I'm here now with our uh, assembled panel to talk about probably, it's not the biggest release of the fall, but it's one of absolutely the big, big, big ones. It's long been delayed by COVID. People are very eager for it. It's been at film festivals already, and it's called Dune. Uh, we've all seen Dune now, I think, but I wanted to start with you, Anthony Bresnikan, because you wrote a feature for us, a first look feature that I believe was the public's first glimpse of this film. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. That was a long time ago, back in the, uh, I guess, near the start of the pandemic, uh, when we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. <laughs> I guess we're still not sure what's going to happen. But at that point, it was still slated for release uh, last December. And so, uh, yeah, that was the big reveal. So in, in your mind, you know, because you've gone deep on it, you've been covering it for the film for a while. Um, this is, you know, it's Denis Villeneuve, who has done big maximalist stuff before in, in uh, Blade Runner 2049 probably is most similar to this. But what do you think Villeneuve's approach does that, say, David Lynch's didn't? Yeah, it's um, it's very different from previous adaptations. There's been a, a TV series. There was, of course, the uh, the uh, the David Lynch film, which I don't think has it. It hasn't even have any revisionist supporters. I think that film is aged just as badly as it was received uh, initially. The primary difference, I think, is that uh, Denis Villeneuve is trying to tell only the first half of Frank Herbert's novel. It does a kind of it it chapter two thing with a, a very uh, dense book, cuts it in half, creates a little bit of a climax in the in the uh, the middle of that story to end this movie, and then if uh, this film does well at the box office, I guess we'll see a, a second installment with the back half of the book, and of course there are many other books after this. If if, uh, if anybody wants to keep that that progression going, but I think that. The most difficult thing about adapting this book is the world is so vast and the characters uh, are so plentiful and the relationships are so dense that it's 
it's very hard to abbreviate in an adaptation. Part of the appeal of Frank Herbert's book is that it it was its own gatekeeper. Like you had to really want to know this world in order to be into it, to, to sort of luxuriate in this uh, futuristic galaxy and the politics and the family relationships that he created. And so I think Denis has done a really good job streamlining that, reducing it down, but still providing the richness of texture that made this story so beloved in the first place. So Chris or David, were either of you familiar with the source material before you saw this film? I can't say that I was. I had never, never seen the Lynch version, never read the books um, uh, at all. So no, I actually went in completely and totally blind. And how did it sit for you then? I mean, did, was, it, was it legible to you? Yeah, I think I expected it to be more complicated, just given the lore of, oh, you know, the Dune heads out there that are so obsessed with it. Um, you know, it's sort of a sort of your classic, you know, chosen one narrative. You know, one boy is the key to saving the earth. So that was pretty uh, easy to swallow. And I did enjoy it. I was actually I was very struck by um, and maybe I was looking for the wrong things, but I was struck by how queer it sort of felt, it, vague parts of the narrative and some of Denise, um, the filmmaking choices, you know, Timothy Chalamet had to sort of hit the right pitch to unleash his power, which had big show choir energy for me. And, you know, the sun was Stephen McKinley Henderson holding a little parasol to shield himself from the sun. You know, that felt very familiar <laughs> to me and very queer in a way. And Timmy's relationship with uh, Rebecca Ferguson, his mom. I know there were a lot of things that I was sort of, I was sort of expecting a classic sci-fi movie and it was a little bit more, it was more interesting than that to me as someone who's not a huge lover of the genre. You know, if I could jump in with uh, Richard, yeah, I think of course. that's yeah, one whenever. of the, I think that's one of the appeals of this book is, and this story and why it's endured is that it is open to so many different interpretations. And I think Chris just brought up one there that what intentional or not, it is, uh, it's capable of carrying a lot of different reads on its back. And, uh, I think that's a, that, that's a sign of a, a sturdy story. There's something there. If, if a lot of people from, uh, lots of different backgrounds can project and see, see relevance or see connection in the story. Uh, I think he's done a good job of, uh, of opening up that world to, uh, like I said, it's its own, the, the, the density of the book is its own uh, gatekeeper, but I think Denis has done a great job of opening it up and making it uh, mainstream, but not just for normies, uh, you know, not just for the average uh, popcorn eater at the multiplex, but opening it for people who really want to want depth and want something that they can interpret and internalize and project uh, their own feelings and, and, and reads onto. Well, the film, you know, I think a sign of, of Warner Brothers' uh, faith in the film is that it's been at major film festivals. It premiered at Venice, it screened at Toronto. I'm curious, David, from your perspective in, in regards to how Dune might be received, how do you think it's played so far? And also, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about it yourself. Yeah, I think it's played pretty well. It's a movie that Warner Brothers has absolutely put everything that it could put behind a movie like this behind. I mean, I, I would not say um, that it will necessarily translate to box office success. I think it's a challenging property in a few areas, although there is reason to hope. But, um, you know, with a 
performance last week of the last duel and how poorly it did. There were a lot of criticisms over the way it was marketed, the amount it was marketed, um, which you know may or may not be relevant to how a movie like that can fare in 2021. But um, I, I don't think you can fault uh, how Dune has been handled by Warner Brothers for how it perf- ultimately performs. Um, I was mixed on the film. Um, I think it runs a little long. I was if you can be a casual, casually aware of Dune, uh, I probably am somewhere in the middle. I had seen the Lynch film. I knew the outlines of the novel, but I hadn't read it. Um, and I think one of the things that Denis Villeneuve does very well is he allows you to sort of surrender to his films and his work. Um, and, and the movie becomes such an overpowering experience in terms of just the technical merits of the movie, the cinematography, the score the editing that uh, there's there's a certain element of being able to let go <laughs> but uh, I found a, I found the first hour particularly a bit difficult to get through with all of the exposition and uh, just the amount of world building he had to do it's an admirable effort and I think he does a really um, thorough job given the the level of details Anthony was saying um, and I think that will be a challenge for it as an awards film um, I think Denise, reputation among directors and filmmakers is very strong. And I think he is a strong candidate, at least for a directing nomination. I think that the movie can fit into a best picture top 10, assuming it doesn't totally bomb at the box office. But as a winner uh, in anything beyond technical categories, I'm quite skeptical. But Warner Brothers has definitely done a really good job of positioning this movie as a strong awards contender. And I think that uh, playing along those lines, it's done quite well. For me, the big kind of clanging alarm bell about Dune, not just in terms of awards or in terms of, you know, fan reaction, but just kind of a general thing that might hang over the film, you know, in a bad way, is that it kind of ends, I mean, it literally ends with a character saying, this is just the beginning. (laughs) And I took my uh, partner to go see it. And afterward, he was like, that was great. I I was so excited. And I was like, yeah, I just wish they'd filmed a sequel already. And he was like, wait, they haven't filmed it yet? Because I think that post Lord of the Rings, we have had these things where like multiple movies have been filmed at once. And you can rest assured as you leave the first one that another's on its way. But that's not the case with this film. So for anyone who, you know, on this panel who wants to like hazard a guess as to why didn't they attempt to do this at once. So at least we had that kind of uh, reassurance that like this is th- that this beginning <laughs> isn't maybe necessarily the end because it's t- entirely possible at this point that there just won't be a continuation. As someone yeah. who didn't even love the movie, I was also mixed on it, uh, like David, I would be deeply annoyed <laughs> if there isn't a second movie, just given the way the first movie ended and how it did feel, as David said, it did feel long and it felt like the movie could have had a pretty satisfying ending if it had ended like an hour earlier. But then when you sort of keep going to sort of set up the second movie, um, I can't speak to why they didn't sort of just do a one-two punch and film both together. I, I'm guessing Anthony probably has more... Uh, more knowledge on that front, but as a casual, you know, first time Dune head, I sort of need to see the second film. And I would like to see the second film, even though the first one did at times feel like a slog and felt like it was like four hours when it was just a tight two and a half. Yeah. I think it's uh Warner brothers hasn't come out and said this explicitly, but I think it is, it's the hedging of a bet. It's uh, it's uh, let's see how this works. And then we'll make the back half. And uh, if it doesn't work, then we'll dedicate that those resources elsewhere. So um, it's, again, 
I don't know if I would characterize it as a lack of faith, but just maybe a carefulness and hesitancy to jump in with both feet. It's also a massive undertaking. So like you say, with Richard, with Lord of the Rings, we're used to that big gamble. Let's make all three movies at once, <laughs> back to back to back. Uh, in this case, I think maybe it was enough for Denis to just split it up, do the first one, and then wait and see what happens next. But uh, I think that comes as its own risk in many ways. So we'll see. I think the other side of this is that Denis was quite committed to this kind of structure in terms of how he wanted to adapt it, how he saw his films working off of the book. And because it is a property that is considered a little bit more, having more of a cultish fan base, it's a little bit more difficult for a studio, especially in this day and age, I think, to greenlight two movies at once. So if you have that kind of standstill, it makes sense that <laughs> you'd have the filmmaker make the film he wants to make and the studio commit to what it feels willing to commit to. I, I did think it was interesting that watching the film, it labels itself immediately as Dune Part 1. Uh, that I did not expect or know. And so there is a sort of implicit message to the audience there that you will get a Part 2, <laughs> um, which is not assured yet. And so that that part was like, I, I don't know how much of that was the studio indicating it may be leaning one way, um, but it felt like a, a big thing to do if you weren't confident you were going to make a second movie. It's it's just also, there's a risk in not doing both at the same time, too. There's an added yeah. cost. It's definitely cheaper post-production to do both at once, two for one. Uh, you got to restart now, go back into post-production, reassemble your cast and crew and, and, uh, and your whole team. When you commit to doing both films at the same time, you don't have to do that. So, you know, they're... I think they're taking the chance that this will be so successful that they can uh, afford to eat those little extra costs. But uh, the other possibility, as uh, some of you guys already mentioned, is that maybe it doesn't do well enough to justify that. Which is where I would imagine that some of Villeneuve's frust you know, vocal frustrations with the rollout of this film um, or the intended rollout uh, lie in that like with the, the kind of bifurcated release of in theaters and on HBO Max, you know, I know it's only on Max for like a month, but... Uh, is that there won't necessarily be the box office the receipts to point to and be like that this is a you know an obvious hit you know obviously Warner Brothers can internally look at the streaming numbers and if they got new subscribers based on Dune and how many people watched it and how long they watched it for all that but for the outside public there won't be as much concrete evidence as to you know the film's success or not and so it's just really interesting to me. Um, you know, as someone who tends to side with the filmmakers who want their film seen, you know, on the biggest screen possible, if that's how they intended it to be seen, I find that to double down on the gamble by also putting it on streaming um, feels like playing fast and loose with something that, you know, judging from the reaction to my somewhat negative review, people are very invested in this being good and being successful and there being more of them. Hmm. Given the rollout, especially after seeing the film, seeing how to the marketing rollout with it all being about Timothy and Zendaya, Zendaya playing such a big part of it, sort of shocking, <laughs> a little bit surprising to me uh, as someone who, if I did not know what to expect from the film going into it, I would think, oh, this is sort of like a you know, Timmy and Zendaya two-hander. And that's not what the movie is. And she's definitely in it, but it's not sort of as much as the marketing, you know, the Entertainment Weekly cover and some of the viral marketing would have you think. So I'm curious to see how, uh, you know, some first time Dune goers 
feel if they've been marketed, oh, you're going to see a lot of this, you know, young, you know, super talented, super uh, buzzy star. And if that, you know, how audiences will react to that. I think that's a really good point because like you were both saying, you have a situation where maybe it does do well and a lot of people go see this movie, but if people aren't expecting not getting an ending and aren't expecting Zendaya being in 10 minutes out of two and a half hours, um, you know, what does that look like? I'm not really sure, but I feel like there are a lot of unanswered questions that go even beyond the box office performance and, um, you know, a casual audience reaction. I think at least the rabid, I mean, they're probably bigger than Zendaya's fan base. Re- Rebecca Ferguson stands. I mean, they're, 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 <laughs> they're finally getting satisfied. their moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she is great. <laughs> They'll be film. very satisfied. Yeah. She's yeah. in a lot of the movie. I, I didn't realize how much of a lead she is. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I guess because probably because I don't, I haven't read the books or seen previous films, but. The, she's that role is expanded from even the books. Uh, so um, you wouldn't have gotten that impression from. Let's not forget Charlotte Rampling stands too. They get a great scene. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, some, they do. <laughs> some BDSM, some queer sort of BDSM, you know, undertones to it, some subtext in terms of her treatment of poor Timothy's hand. Um, loves that was one of my favorite parts of the film. So, and you know, there's some there's some great some great Oscar Isaac is wonderful. There are some really good and interesting performance and moments among the sort of two and a half hours um, that I enjoyed, but I do think, uh, I mean, I won't speak for everyone, but it doesn't seem like the movie is so good or so undeniably great that it has to have a sequel. Um, So I do think how it performs and Richard's points about, you know, it's on HBO Max, but it's also in theaters. I do think that's going to play a big role because just as a piece of cinema, I wasn't like so blown away that um, it demands a a sequel, but I actually am curious to see what happens and I will not sadly be reading the books, I think. Well, I think that we should probably not say much more because people, you know, want to go in kind of blind. I mean, either they've read the books and they, they, they just don't want to be spoiled about how that stuff is incorporated in the film, but also maybe they don't know anything about it and they just want to be totally surprised. But Anthony, I believe you do have something of an explainer up on VF.com for like terms and stuff like that. Is that right? Well, yeah, not so much terms, but a guide to the warring factions. It, okay. It's very much uh, an inspiration for George R. R. Martin and the, his uh, Song of Ice and Fire series of books and Game of Thrones uh, in that there is there are so many different groups and so many different characters that it can be a little daunting to keep it all straight. So uh, I did a guide, a field guide to the warring factions of Dune, just to explain the politics and the relationships. And uh, you can find that on VanityFair.com. Yes, it's an essential reading. I wish I'd had it when I went to go see it. The Wikipedia page was not as well worded as your piece, Anthony. So, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's designed to not be spoilerish. It's really just an introduction to who's who and and where is where and when is when. Uh, well, thank you for writing that, and thank uh, you all three of you for uh, taking the time to chat about this tiny little indie that I hope people can go see if they can find it at a theater or on their TVs. Thank you all. So now we're going to hear the interview that I did with Diane Warren ahead of our onstage conversation at FilmFest 919 in Chapel Hill, which as you listen to this, if you're downloading this on the day the episode comes out, FilmFest 919 is still happening. You can still buy tickets. So if you were in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill and thereabouts, please join us there. Um, But for now, we can hear a little bit of my conversation with Diane Warren. 
As a songwriter who, you know, works by yourself, has the pandemic been good for you in that way that you've been able to kind of like buckle down and, and focus on your work and not be out and about in the world? What, during the pandemic? I loved it. Yeah. I, I'm almost yeah. guilty to say it was great for me. I mean, I just had no one to annoy me except myself. <laughs> I know you're really prolific under normal circumstances. Did you get even more work done? Yeah, I got a lot done, <laughs> you know, and um, I got a lot of great songs written and um, it was easy to reach artists because of no one was on the road. So that was a plus, you know, so I, and, and I didn't mind. I, I, I'm by myself a lot and, I, and I'm good with it. So. Well, you also released an album last year and or no, this year in, you know, and as we continue to be in lockdown. How did it feel putting that out in the world again when you're kind of not doing the in-person um, part of promoting something like that? Um, it, it, it's exciting to put this record out because, you know, there's so many great artists on it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of great songs. There's so much variety. I like that you worked with Reba McIntyre this year because she's someone else who's had such a long uh, career and has worked with so many different people. Is, was that a common connection for the two of you, just, you know, having seen the industry through all the changes that your careers have witnessed? Well, it's, a, it's the third song that I've done with Reba. I had a big hit with her with a song called I'll Be back in the day. But I thought when I wrote the song, Somehow You Do, for the movie Four Good Days, Glenn Close and Mila Kunis, uh, I wanted to write a song, a really song of hope and and, and a song of that, that you get through the struggle um, no matter what struggle you're going through within this movie, it was about addiction and what was going on with, with our characters, you know, and outside of the movie, it can be about, you know, if you look at the comments on the video, there's about depression and how, how the song is giving people hope. And I wanted a voice to express that because casting a song is very important to me. I wanted a voice that has gone through a lot, you know, the voice of a person that's gone through a lot. So Reba McIntyre has gone through a lot, you know, look at her back her, at her life. You know, she's, she's, gone through some pretty heavy things, you know, whether losing her band in the plane crash and a lot of personal stuff in her life, you know, she's a survivor. Um, and I thought that that that's the perfect, you know, song. she's like the avatar for that song. Just like, you know, when I wrote mm -hmm. I'll Fight for RBG and it, you have a soft-spoken little small woman with a, this giant woman, really, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, and I wanted her, her avatar to be a diva. I wanted that to be, you know, Jennifer mm -hmm. Hudson. Just so, so I wanted the, I wanted the, you know, I wanted Reba McIntyre. This is someone who's gone through all this shit and came came out stronger on the other side of it. And the fact is, you can go through all kinds, all kinds of stuff, and then you know, somehow you get through it. You know, you know, some way, some, you know, you know, when when you know when you think it's the end of the road, it's just because you don't know where the road's leading to. When you think the mountain's too high and the ocean's too wide, and you'll never get through. Some way, somehow, somehow you do. It's just a strong statement, you know, that you'll get through stuff. It might seem impossible at the time, but but you will get through it. It's the strength of the human spirit. When you sit down and write a song like that, do you start from that idea of, I want to write a song expressing hope? What do you start with for, for that song, just as an example of how your process well, works? Well, I, I saw a rough cut of the movie, and I came in the next day, and just that chorus came out. And I just, it, it, I had, had tears in my eyes as I was writing it. It was, it was during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think that some of that played into it, too, that there was a lot of people going through a lot of hard times, too. And I just, I just, you know, it, it, that chorus wrote itself, to be honest. And then, and then the rest of the song, you know, took a lot of work to, to tie everything together and, and tie it in emotionally and, you know, tell a story. When you say something takes a lot of work, does that just involve time of you kind of thinking it through, of trying a bunch of different things that don't work? What is When something doesn't come as easily, what does that look like? You know, that, like, again, that chorus kind of wrote itself. But then the rest of the song, you know, 
it just takes time to find what's right. Sometimes you have to go through a lot of wrong stuff to find what's right, but ultimately you get you somehow you do. <laughs> I think it was a another interview. I don't remember if you spoke about this or the interviewer, but you work alone pretty much entirely. And a lot of times songwriters are teams and a lot of times you'll get songs with like 12 different credited writers. And you've been kind of skeptical of that process. Why, why does working alone work for you so well? Because that's what works for me. I mean, I can write a great song by myself and it kind of makes me a unicorn right now. I mean, you know, cause you know, which is weird cause it's not that weird to write a song by yourself, but I guess it is. In fact, me and Lionel Richie are, we're tied with the most number one songs written by ourselves in, in billboard history, which is kind of cool. Um, wow. I, it's just how it works for me. You know, I mean, I've co-written with artists, you know, but it's my best songs are the ones I write. Mm-hmm. That's just how it goes. And I, and I love, you know, I have my thing that works for me and I just love it. Does it feel like the way that the industry thinks about songwriters and kind of appreciates the work that you do has changed over time? Has it gotten better or gotten worse? Do you, do you think songwriters are being given their due by by the industry as a whole? You know, I mean, I think we should be paid more on streaming, <laughs> publish, you know, songwriters and publishers. Yeah, but that's a whole other issue. You mean, but I mean, there's always, song. you know, I mean, I've always been treated well. I can only speak for myself, really, you know, but... Do they get recognition? Yeah, songwriters, I mean, I mean, songs are important. I mean, we sh- songwriters should get recognition. But we're also, be- like, with me, I know my place is not at the forefront. When I'm writing, mm-hmm. giving a song to an artist, I know where my place is. That's why my album's kind of weird for me, because I'm not used to having my name, like, on it. You know, I keep forgetting that, the, uh, like, oh, yeah, the Santana G. Easy song. And they'll go, no, no, that's Diane Warren's Santana G. Easy. You know? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. But, you know, they're doing all the work. I mean, I wrote the song. But, you know, I'm trained basically to know, like, where my place is. Like, I've trained myself. Like, I know, like, I'm, I'm good. Like, you guys get the spotlight, you know. Um, I'm fine not in the spotlight. I'm basically a shy person in real life that probably people don't believe that, but I really am. And I, and I just, um, I, like, I like being in the background. Um, and then, no, this year I got to, you know, Laura Pausini, um, who's a stunning vocalist. I mean, she killed that shit. I mean, she sang her ass off. And, you know, I, I accompanied her. Again, it's, I'm, I'm in the background, I'm on the piano. I'm good. You know, and even, and I kind of... But you guys were up on the roof of the Academy Museum. It was such a stunning spot. Right, wasn't it? And it was beautifully shot. And it was, it was amazing to have that experience. It really was. It's the first time I've ever yeah. performed on the Oscars. There's a lot of people who will kind of talk about being nominated for an Oscar and being like, you know, it was an honor to be nominated, which it obviously is. But I think you've been really refreshingly frank about that the process has been. And, you know, being nominated as many times as you have is a huge honor. But I think you've been it's nice to see that you've been open about that, how it would feel to win it eventually. Do you are you glad that you're just kind of speaking the truth about it? Let me, but let me tell you this. And this is this is real. So, yeah, it would be great to win. But the fact that, you know, I've been nominated 12 times by the best of the best of the best. The people within my branch, in the music branch, are the greatest composers. They're the greatest songwriters. They're they're like, you know, as good as you get on the planet. And there's only five songs picked a year. So if I'm one of those songs, and I've been one of those songs, you know, 12 times, and I, I'm highly honored. That's that's humbling, that's, that's a win. That's a giant, giant win. So I, like, just getting nominated. I, I have pretty big celebrations when I get nominated. I wait up all night for the nominations and, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Again, there's only five songs, unlike the Grammys where there's lots of song categories. There's just one 
and there's lots of songs and lots of movies released every year. So to have that, you know, that, you know, that level of respect, it's great. What does that nominations morning celebration look like? It's so so early in Los Angeles. How do you celebrate? It's a sleepless night. And, um, <laughs> you know, and we just stayed up all night and and it was fun. And, and, and hearing the song, you know, get nominated. And, and look, it was an Italian. But it's a beautiful mm-hmm. song. And, you know, it, it, it didn't end up winning. But what's really cool is that song is kind of becoming a, a standard. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a beautiful classic song. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's just one of those songs and one of those melodies that, you know, people are covering it, you know, a lot right now. And, and that's as for a songwriter. That's just the coolest thing in the world. There's been so many um, depictions of songwriting on in films and in television. And I, you know, I don't know what it's like to write a song. I feel like I've watched a lot of people pretend to write songs. I think of A Star is Born with Lady Gaga, where, you know, you wrote a excellent pop song in the middle of it. And um, that one feels like it, it was at least good to watch as a movie. I don't know how accurate it is to what actually writing a song well, why is. Why did like, you do so. that, you mean? Why did you, the butt song? Oh, yeah, that song's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I love that song. And um, I, that's my line. I'm, I'm guilty of that one, of that crime. Of, you know, <laughs> why'd you come around here with an ass like that? Was that, the first, was that the line? Yeah, why do you uh, why do you come up to me with an ass like that? Why do you look so good in those jeans? Yeah, that that, that was those were my lines, and that's the that's the line. Um, Bradley Cooper, yeah, that's the one that he you know kind of hates her for. <laughs> oh, but I think that's uh for those of us who are huge fans of the movie, I think we all see him in that moment. We're like, no, 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 you're wrong. You are holding her back from. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a great pop song, you know. And I, I wish they would have put that song out as a single. So I, I think it would have been. A oh hit. yeah, well it's uh. It's on the soundtrack, at least. I've yeah, a lot of people love times. it, you know. And there was all this thing at the time. Was it meant to be a bad song? No, it was meant to be a fucking great pop song. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. And now finally, we're going to close out the show uh, back in the world of Dune. Uh, Let's hear Anthony Bresnikan talk to Dune star Rebecca Ferguson. Our guest... Rebecca Ferguson is known to moviegoers all over the world for playing a particular kind of toughness on screen. Um, she's Ilsa Faust in Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Fallout. She was the soul devourer, Rose the Hat in Doctor Sleep, and the futuristic femme fatale in the recent film Reminiscence. Uh, good or bad, her characters fight hard for what they believe in. And that's also true of her latest role, Lady Jessica, in the upcoming adaptation of Dune from filmmaker Denis Villeneuve. Rebecca Ferguson, welcome to Little Gold Men. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with Dune, which is a film you and I talked about more than a year ago when Vanity Fair did its first look of the movie. Uh, At that point, the world had just gone into lockdown. I think you were telling me you were really unsure what was going to happen with the next Mission Impossible movie, which you were shooting at the time. And so the the film has somewhat been on, I mean, it's been on hold for uh, more than a year. And I wondered if that time has resulted in you in a change of perspective on the character. I mean, it was all shot, it was put together. 
but I wondered if you've had time to uh, just think about whether uh, Lady Jessica and the story of Dune has uh, has evolved in your own mind, uh, the meaning of it, the significance of it, and why it might be an important movie for right now. I do actually think I have I haven't been sitting during COVID contemplating over the role of 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 Jessica. Uh-huh. To be honest, I think I've just been too interested in the world at hand and the issues lying. But I think what I agree with in your comment is the the interviews that I've done and the fans mm-hmm. that's contacted me their questions, the way they formulate their ideas around Jessica, um, the way that they um, respond to the material um, and sort of their, their, their interest in the, in the film and the role and at hand when it comes to you know, geopolitical, recycling, resources, women, feminism. Yes, all those things. Yeah. <laughs> all those things. I think it had me go, oh, wow. I mean, I, I just remembered my lines, really. <laughs> But I think what I think what that speaks for is how adaptable and changeable a piece of material can be in the eyes of the beholder when it comes to um, a situation. You know, as you said, life has changed. Mm-hmm. Film hasn't really changed, has it? No, but that's what makes a story timeless, isn't it? Is that it, it can take on new significance or more significance uh, based on the environment it's in. And I also love the fact that you can go in. And you can be on the barricades or barricades of, of fighting anything of all of those themes, mm-hmm. but you can also go and just enjoy an epic, cool, explosive film. You mm-hmm. know, it actually just works for everyone. Yeah, it's about wonder too, and adventure, and finding new frontiers, and exploring, and sound, and emotion, and yeah. just you know, my son. I've said this to someone before. My fourteen-year-old son. I would never expect him to react the way he did. We had a private screening, mm-hmm. um, and when the um, Hans Zimmer's sound came for the landing of a spaceship, he just grabbed my arm, and I could just sense he didn't even look at me, and. He just said straight out, God, this is so beautiful. <laughs> and I thought, really? Dude, you're 14. I thought you'd be excited about Jason Momoa fighting or something. <laughs> but my point is, even him, mm-hmm. even, even a 14-year-old kid um, can relate to the material in a way that's very unexpected. Mm-hmm. Does that real-life relationship play into your performance at all as Lady Jessica? Being a mother is such a big part of who she is and her her protectiveness of uh, Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul Atreides. I think when Denny and I spoke about this role, he had a worry that I was too young to play his mom. And then obviously finding out, and he knew that I had two children, um, obviously not at the age of Timothy, but there's also something very ageless about their relationship, I mm-hmm. find. But I think you're right in the fact that have you been and you are a parent, doesn't really matter the age. There's love and devotion, protection, you would do anything to train and, and, and to develop your, your, your off kin, you know. And that is, even though, you know, we're speaking about kind of superheroes in a way, you know, yeah. with their powers and their inner soul journey. But at the, at the core of it, it's just a mom and a son, you know. Mm-hmm. That's important to remember that intimacy, right, when you're painting on a vast canvas like Dune, the humanity of it. The humanity and the relationship between these characters is the core to why the film, for me, is so relatable and so wonderful. Because 
you can play your, you know, I remember Janet McTeer saying to me once, don't play your clothes, don't play your, your queen gown. You don't have to, you're wearing it. Play the emotion of it. And that is exactly the same thing with this. You know, even if you're a Bene Gesserit, you know, one of the most powerful human beings, a woman, a part of a female organization that can manipulate the outcome of anything with a snap of their fingers, they can turn, you know, power into dust, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. And yet they don't. Mm -hmm. they, they, they have to let everything just have its way because of love and devotion and need and sacrifice and, it's mm -hmm. down to core emotions, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's an intricacy to this world that was created by Frank Herbert in his 1965 novel. Denny and I have talked about this a lot in the stories I've written where he he's aware it's a very complex story. So for those who maybe are listening to this before seeing the film, uh, we should talk about exactly who Lady Jessica is because she has a lot of strained allegiances. She has many commitments. She is the... The term they use is concubine, but she's really more of a the wife, right, of Duke Leto, uh, Oscar Isaac's character. She's the mother of Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul Atreides. She's also a member of the Bene Gesserit, uh, the group you just mentioned, which is an order. Well, how would you describe the Bene Gesserit? They're an order of a religious sect of women uh, in the galaxy. <laughs> I'm so worried about using words like sect because it puts sort of an already stated idealism of this group who is so much more than, than uh, the religious belief. They are, they are the highest form of connective organization where they root with their heritage, where they, mm -hmm. where they have a, a power to manipulate mind and thought, where they have a possibility of, of taming the cells of a body before manipulating it to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But they're also um, plotting the universe. And they are tying allegiances and power by, by dripping children into families to create bonds across the universe. Mm -hmm. They're basically kind of like a puppet master on the highest of levels to create a peaceful, orderly sort of way forward in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. And then you have my character who basically just rebels against all of it because but of love. <laughs> <laughs> But that's her that's her her dictate, right? Is she's assigned to be in this relationship with Duke Leto. And she's also, you know, she is asked to arrive into the family as the concubine. But as it's said, she is a bodyguard. She's there to protect Duke and mm -hmm. to, to give him an offspring, to give him a daughter, to be able to tie an alliance with, I believe, the Hakonan's family. This is the this is the deal. This is the mm -hmm. plan. But love comes in. Mm -hmm. She falls in love. He falls in love. He wants a son. She believes that she has the power to create what all the Bene Gesserits are wanting to create. Mm -hmm. And with that, she then has to tame the future for the troubles that he, she has created. Do you think she's conflicted? We pick up with her uh, very far along in her relationship with Duke Leto. And uh, they obviously they have this young son, uh, who's a young man who's coming into his own. Um, so it's been, they've been together for many years. And when I spoke to Denis, he said 
he compared Lady Jessica to, uh, he said he loves her duality, that she's in love with her husband, but at the same time she has this allegiance to the Bene Gesserit. And he said, his quote was, she's like a Russian spy who would have been in America for 20 years, but she's fallen in love with the diplomat she's been assigned to, raised kids, uh, but she's still a Russian spy. Do you see? Do you see what he sees there, or is that, is that a comparison? You're you're kind of laughing and rubbing your eyes I'm right now. <laughs> my eyes, because I know Denny's mind, and I thought that's obviously where he would go. Um, I mean, that's far too deep for me to even even consider um, the analogy of. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do. I do see. I mean, I mean, you could also bring it to the Stockholm syndrome, can't you? Mm. Uh, you know, in the sense that you fall in love with your perp- perpetrator. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah, you're a kidnapper or something, yeah. But but at the same time, I love the simplicity of the fact that she just falls in love mm-hmm. and the fact that she's not double spying. She's not playing games in that sense. She's very open with what she's doing. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like she is hiding anything. I love the dynamic between these people. I love when the Duke says will you protect our son? And he has never once throughout our relationship said that he accepts the witchcraft that I have, right? Mm -hmm. I am dropped into the environment. Well, that in quotation marks, by the way, for the listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, Jessica is dropped into the environment, as we said, to tie allegiances with Mm -hmm. other, other families. And he kind of accepts the situation. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't want to hear about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. And he doesn't want to see it. Just protect him. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a selfish, the horse, what do you call these? The, the blinders. Blinders, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then gradually he understands that there is something larger out there than just the kindness of being a great duke. Mm-hmm. There are actually bigger things at stake. And when he says, will you protect our son, but not as a mother, but as a Bene Gesserit? Mm-hmm. That, for me, is such a beautiful turn in their relationship. The first of acknowledgments of who she actually is. Mm. I like that. When she's she's free. That kind of unifies her two sides then, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? It links, Mm. as we talked about kind of spy and hiding, but at that moment, I I see you, is kind Mm -hmm. of what he said. I recognize you and I need your help. What I like about her, and, and I feel like this is an evolution from the book, where she doesn't have quite as many dimensions as you and Denis give her, is that um, I feel like Lady Jessica is asserting herself in this story, is that she has all of these mandates and expectations upon her from very early in her life. And this is her the culmination of years of her really asking what she believes and what she wants. And I feel like, you correct me if I'm wrong about this, I feel like one reason she fell in love with Oscar Isaac's character, the Duke, is because she saw sincerity in him. She saw realness in him, that this was, this may be a politically arranged relationship, but he's real. What he does and the decency with which he conducts his uh his leadership. What's that? That's why he is so loved across the mm-hmm. universe. That's why he is such a threat. Because he is real. Because he does things out of purity. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that would be, I mean, I'm speaking out of terms of Rebecca, if I was Jessica, but that is something <laughs> that 
I think anyone would fall in love with, but I think that's also a naivety with which makes her annoyed and frustrated mm. because she is smarter than that. Her brilliance goes across centuries of any form of connection and, and, and power. She's always 10 steps ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. So she's aware that this new mission of theirs to go to the world of Arrakis and oversee the spice mining operation is a trap, right? She will understand, as she says in, this, in, in, in one of the scenes, she says, it means Bene Gesserit have been there. They've planted superstitions. They've prepared the way for us. Mm-hmm. Preparing way means preparing way because there can be war. Mm-hmm. So she will know that with every step I take, from the moment I created a sun, mm-hmm. I have created chaos wherever we go. And the moment we leave our home, we are in dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely what the outcome is exactly, she can't see the future in that sense, but she absolutely understands the bigger picture before the big boys sign the big papers in the stone table in the room where only boys are allowed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you tell me about this divide that you are, you're alluding to there, the, 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 this is a futuristic society, but it's almost retrograde. It's a feudal society. There are dukes and lords, and there's, again, this religious order, the Bene Gesserit that Lady Jessica is a part of, and the men and women are kept separate, and he's expected to have a male heir, and the Bene Gesserit want him to have a female heir. What do you think the film says about I don't know if, if the right term would be sexism or uh, the relationships between men and women, the, the patriarchal society that we still live in. We can't, we can't change history. Mm-hmm. We can't change where we've come from. This is the story. It was written in 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we get to mess stories up to the point that we create a complete gender equality, then there's no battle. You need that for drama. <laughs> of course you do. Mm-hmm. You, need the, you need that for this drama. This is mm-hmm. based on a book written by someone who was quite ahead of his time when it came to women. Mm-hmm. When it, you know, writing the Bene Gesserit in the 60s, that's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yet she needed to eat her food in her room. And, and, you know, Frank came from a world that was pushing women, you know, far beyond the surface of the power and, 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 the, and mm-hmm. the equality. So my point is, we tell stories the way that they were told. Mm-hmm. And then what Bernie has done is enlightened it. And, and I keep on saying defibrillated the power for her so that it actually generates more interest for one, me to play her, two, for the generations that are now to watch her. Mm-hmm. But it's a very fine balance. If you would have made her into a superhero woman who just kicked ass and won over everyone, <laughs> I mean, that would have been utterly dull, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. There's suspense and drama mm-hmm. and stakes that needs to be held. The equality films are something else that we're basing on reality, hopefully of today and where we're on our way towards. But we need to know where we've come from to understand the evolution of where we're going. Do you feel there was anything in particular you had to grapple with or learn or understand in order to play her? What were some of the things that, I guess, what didn't you understand about the mind of Lady Jessica when you originally signed on? What did you have to learn or understand in order to play her? What I loved about the way Denny wanted me to execute her presence mm-hmm. was with stillness. Her presence is so prominent and strong without doing anything, without saying, by just thinking. That was all I had to do. He would put a camera on me 
and I would have to have the thoughts of reading the room and the pressure and the stakes. And that's very powering. That's very cool and new. I'm quite used to having to 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 be strong in a physical way or or by the loudness or by killing little children. Or, <laughs> um, that's Rose the Hat, by the way. Um, <laughs> my point is there was something so wonderful about in heighting her, her power by making her just still. Mm. I think that's something that I learned. And I also loved the fact that before she generates power, she needs to still every pore in herself and in the other person. So she has to be able to control every single nerve system. Mm. And to do that, it's a meditative state, right? And that kind of, it kind of resembles something that I've really cherished during this COVID time, the stillness, the connection, the calm, and to listen, you know? You won't see the threat if you don't listen. How do you think she feels about her son? There's a scene at the beginning of the story where where <laughs> where uh, where he has to prove uh, that he has resilience. He puts his hand in the box of pain and if the only thing that will hurt him is if he withdraws it. And he passes that test. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler since it's right at the beginning of the film. But um, does she think he's strong? There's a, there's a question that runs throughout the film of, of like, is he strong enough to do this? You know, as a mother, I'm a father myself. I think when you raise children, you, one on one hand, want to give them all of the things that you love, the stories you love, the things you love, the foods you love, teach them about that. But you also want to direct them away from the things that hurt you or the things that you wish were different about your own life and raise them a little differently. How do all these things factor into how Lady Jessica feels about Timothy's character, Paul? Does she see him as strong or does she see somebody who still needs to be formed? I believe that she creates Paul because she knows her own power. His strength is a result of my own power. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Otherwise, I would have created a daughter, right? Mm -hmm. I believe I have created the God. That is the whole reason to why I create a boy. Mm -hmm. Now... I believe that Jessica's belief in herself would have been stronger had the Reverend Mother supported that thought. But no one supports her. She's completely lonely in this belief. And hence why the test. Because a mm -hmm. normal human being would take his hand out and not pass the test. And the outcome would be death. Mm -hmm. So she will always have a doubt until proven the opposite. So... There's in one hand, she believes so strongly that she has created a God. And then in the other hand, she has a rebellious teenager who just doesn't understand the stakes at hand. And that's the part that me, Rebecca, loves because I can relate to it as my child. Um, you know, just sit up straight. Don't, please don't question. I've told you this 400 million times, you know, and that normalizes it for me anyway. And then you get to that part where we, as you said, as parents, all we can do is we can protect, we can nurture, we can prepare, but at some point we have to just let them go. Mm -hmm. And we can't do anything else. We can just be there and hold space for them always and be their protective person. But it's their route. When he starts taking his own route, there's a moment within the film that is my favorite where power shifts, where he understands his power. Now, what happens with a person who understands his power? Does he use it to benefit 
others or himself. Mm. And these are emotions she constantly has to deal with. So it's not an easy question or answer in that sense. Everything is constantly moving and generates one choice. What happens when you pass one test? There's always the next. There's mm-hmm. always the next. And that's what she has to go through with this shakeable sort of reality of this powerful entity. Mm-hmm. So you did mission. Did you do two missions? Are there back to back Mission Impossible films? Or You never know <laughs> what you're doing, really. It's one of the best things. You film and really? he's like, so this one's going into eight, this one's going into seven. Um, yeah, you never really know, to be honest. That's what's quite lovely. We don't work with scripts. You get you, to decide when you arrive. You don't get scripts? No. So what do you know? Like, you can't reveal, obviously, what you know, but like, what are the parameters? You don't that- know anything. <laughs> the parameters are you have complete trust that you're working with a brilliant storyteller, Chris mm-hmm. McCoy. Tom knows so much about basically everything. Mm-hmm. So they're like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um, you try and get close to them on set because then they'll start telling stories of, oh my God, we can do this. And then she enters. And, and that's when you start going, oh, that makes sense. I can kind of create a puzzle here. But to be honest, you have absolutely no idea where you're going to go, what you're going to do. When you run in a scene, you don't know if you're running away or towards something. <laughs> is that is that on purpose? Like if you ask, if you said, can you just explain what's happening? Would they tell you or are they trying to keep you in the dark? No, they laugh and say, we don't know. We'll figure it out at the end. Let's do four options towards, up, down and after. You know, as long as you're prepped, you know your stunts, you know your lines. And, and that's kind of, it's a very different way of shooting a film. And there's something very joyous about it. Huh. I would I would guess the opposite, that it's frustrating. Or doesn't an actor want to know, what's my motivation? <laughs> it's frustrating, but we all know it. Tom's the most frustrated. You know, it's it's sort of a, it's it's such a moving piece. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I think they set things around, you know, action sequences and a lot of character development. And then I think they're so creative. One of the moments, it's, it's horrendously annoying. It's literally mm-hmm. like giving birth. A painful, like, beep. And then you just want to do it again because it is just so heart-throbbingly exciting. It's a very weird love-hate dynamic with Mission for everyone involved, even Tom. <laughs> himself. Um, but for example, very quickly, we're on set mm-hmm. and there's a, a scene with all the actors, there's a kerfuffle, there's a stunt that needs to happen and no one knows what's going to happen. Literally, we don't know what the day is going to be like. We know our lines. The scene has been written, but we don't know the dynamics. And I think I was in a bad mood and I arrived and I thought, oh, once again, we don't know what we're doing. Oh, I'm certain this could literally be shot now. Come on. And I sat down and I looked at Tom and I looked at Chris for about an hour and I saw them dance the scene together. And it was like watching some, I don't know, like a piece of magic come to life that they probably couldn't have written as well as it then got filmed. They've found a way that just works. Is it frustrating for everyone around? Yes. Is it rewarding (laughs) when you're a part of it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so the improvising action films. Yeah. Just on a, on a vast scale. On a vast scale. And then you watch it and you go, oh, that's why I took the thing from the thing. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, one of my favorite stories is Rogue Nation. 
and I had to steal this thing from Tom. I defibrillate him and then I mm -hmm. run off and I glide over a hood of a car. And then he goes, yeah, and don't forget, you've got the thing in your hand. And I go, what's the thing? And they go, it's, it's, the, it's the whole thing of the film. And I go, what do you mean? It's, it's the, you know, the thing that blows the thing up. And I go, what is it? <laughs> we don't know, but we'll say it's as big as a lighter. <laughs> ah. I get a lighter in my hand. <laughs> They'll fix it later. They'll change it later. <laughs> like the nuclear whatever, you know. <laughs> that does it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed the many different segments and voices that you got to hear this time. Um, you can find us at VanityFair.com where you can read uh, the pieces that Rebecca wrote that we talked about and reviews of Dune and interviews and everything else. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And then for those guys who talked about Dune, you know where to find them. You can also sign up to text with us as two wonderful listeners did about the Academy Museum special at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-809-7096. We really do love hearing from you. This week's award for the way that we would like to thank Brett Fuchs, who edits and produces every episode, goes to Rebecca Ford. I owe it to my editor. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.